RTI International's Justice Practice Area presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In the final episode of our trauma-informed research methods mini-season, Just Science sat down with Dr. Noni Gaylord-Hardin, a researcher from Texas A&M University, and Dr. Vicki Johnson-Lawrence, a researcher from RTI International, to discuss how to thoughtfully conduct research outreach and dissemination in a community setting. At the initial stages of community-based research, it is important for researchers to form meaningful connections with community members and listen to their needs instead of making assumptions about what is most important to study or pay attention to. By taking a slow and mindful approach, researchers will ask questions that will be purposeful for the community and foster a better understanding of how to disseminate their research findings in a way that is valuable to the community being served. Listen along as Drs. Gaylord Harden and Johnson Lawrence describes what it means to center community voices in research, the importance of being flexible in your research approach, and the challenges of taking a trauma-informed approach to community outreach and dissemination. This episode is funded by RTI International's Justice Practice Area. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here are your hosts, Jacqueline Houston-Kolnick and Hannah Feeney. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline Houston-Kolnick, and I'm joined today with my co-host, Hannah Feeney. We are researchers at RTI International in the Victimization and Response Program. In today's episode, we're continuing our conversation on trauma-informed research methods to talk about trauma-informed approaches to community outreach and dissemination. This is an exciting episode in this series because outreach and dissemination are two critical pieces of any research project. This is when all of the hard work from the research can come to fruition in the form of action, if done well. And it being done well ultimately depends on how much we engage with the community, ground our findings in the lived experience of those our research represents, and how we ensure our findings reach the intended audience by amplifying that impact and closing the research to practice gap. I'm so excited to be joined today by Dr. Noni Gaylord-Hardin from Texas A&M University, and Dr. Vicki Johnson-Lawrence from RTI International. Welcome, Noni and Vicki. Thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hey. So let's start off with some introductions. Who are you and what do you do? Noni, let's start with you. Thank you, Jacqueline. Well, I am a child clinical psychologist by training, but I am a professor of clinical psychology at Texas A&M University, and I'm also the director of the Youth Rising Research Lab at A&M. I teach psychology courses at the university, but I also mentor and train undergraduate and graduate students who are pursuing degrees in psychology. In our research lab, we conduct community-based research on traumatic stress and mental health among Black youth and families. I've been doing this work for almost 20 years now, partnering with schools and youth serving community-based agencies and disinvested urban communities. So I'm really glad to be here. We're so glad you're here. Vicki, it's amazing how our paths cross here at RTI. Um, you recently recorded a fabulous episode with Dr. Kanika Hall covering trauma-informed care specifically for supporting youth resilience on the Elevate Youth Programming podcast. And I, that podcast provided pregnancy prevention program providers and youth serving agencies an opportunity to learn best practices, tips and strategies to strengthen their programming. Because of your amazing insights on that episode, we asked you to join us here for this Just Science conversation. For our listeners, can you tell us a little bit more about your work and who you are? Uh, absolutely. 
I am currently the program director of the Community Health and Implementation Research Program in the health practice area at RTI. And beyond that, I am a participatory health equity researcher. I'm trained as an epidemiologist, and I spent the last several years working in Flint, Michigan, working alongside community partners to address community health, think about upstream determinants of health, think about how we can collaboratively address community mental health. And then because I was in Flint, we spend a great amount of time thinking about how we work across sectors, how we do multi-sectoral work to address general community health in a trauma-informed way. And for us, ultimately, that meant paying attention to being trauma-informed when we do interventions and health research, being sensitive to our community partner perspectives, honoring their lived experiences, and ensuring that we were bringing true benefit as they tell us, not as we tell them it ought to be when we talk about serving community and improving community health. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so excited that you're, you mentioned that multi-sector collaboration perspective, because I think that's so key in so much of this work in communities is it's a lot of different pieces and players at the table and how do we function in trauma-informed ways as we navigate those spaces alongside the community. Listeners, if you're interested in that Elevate Youth Programming episodes, you can find the link to those on the landing page of this episode. So feel free to check those out. But let's launch into our conversation today about outreach and dissemination. So before we fully dive in, I kind of want to set the foundation a little bit because trauma-informed is a phrase that's used a lot. I've heard both of you use it already. But when you use this terminology, what do you mean? What does trauma-informed mean to you? Maybe we could start with Noni. Sure, you all have covered kind of the basic definition of trauma-informed work, which involves acknowledging the, the impact that trauma exposure can have on an individual. For us, in our work, it's also acknowledging how our research practices, our research ideas, questions, and methods may impact young people who have experienced traumatic stress and also traumatic loss and how our belief systems or how our worldview may impact how we respond to young people who have experienced trauma and loss. Vicki, did you want to share what trauma-informed means to you as well? So to me, the general principles that I'm operating by means that we're empathy-driven. So when we ask questions, we aren't just digging for information, but we are actually thinking about how those questions will benefit the people we're asking those questions from. Uh, the second big way that it shows up for me is in limiting unintended consequences. So consistent with what Noni described, 100% thinking about why we do the things that we do and making sure that there aren't these other pieces or to the best that we can. I won't say that we do it perfectly because we don't, but to the best extent or to the greatest extent that we can, limiting how often the things that we say or do create problems for others because we didn't think about them or they didn't create problems for us. I think that's a huge part of it. And in the research space, this is a big piece to unlearn for all the reasons Noni has already pointed out. I think there is a big piece of this that means appreciating the expertise and the lived experiences of the people who we say we're helping. And then back to the point I made previously in my introduction is being willing to collaborate across sectors. And by that, I mean, none of us knows all of everything, but being able to listen and not just listen to respond, but listen to engage and work together. Those are big features of being trauma-informed in the community space that I've seen. Yeah, I've heard you start touching on this already, but what does it look like to be trauma-informed in community outreach and dissemination specifically? In outreach and dissemination, I think there's some reality check that has to happen pretty much at the beginning. And that reality check means we, me as a researcher, 
being quiet and listening fully and attentively to the people who we are asking questions of or the people who we say we're serving or benefiting. So when we say we're doing outreach and dissemination, is it something that they even want to hear or do they understand why there's value in doing it? If we haven't gotten those two pieces in place, when we say we're trying to share something or or we want our work to be heard or valued or appreciated, which is usually what I think as professionals, that's part of what we're after. If we're not being mindful of those things, our outreach and dissemination efforts can struggle a lot and for a long period of time. So being trauma-informed and outreach and dissemination means listening first, talking second. It means being mindful and patient, even though we want to push our message across maybe as quickly as we want. It doesn't go that way. And being okay with that. Yes, I agree 100%. Vicki nailed it. You know, listening rather than talking and leading with listening. We try to, when we engage with communities, receiving permission to partner with those communities. We were recently talking with a group of adults who they have a community-based organization that serves young people. And they wanted us to come and sit in on one of their meetings with the young people. And they told us what day they meet. And And I said, do we have permission from the young people yet? So what I'd like for you all to do is to, at your next session, rather than us being there, why don't you talk with them about who we are and what we do and see if they would be okay with us coming and introducing ourselves. This is a safe space that you've created for young people and us being there is going to change the dynamics of that space. So how do we do this in a way that preserves what you all have put together and built and honors the power that young people have in that space? We um, try to enter communities as collaborators and not as experts and as as Vicky mentioned a few times, you know, how do we center the voices of, of young people in the work that we do? That's, that's critically important, that it's not our voices that are coming through, but the voices of young people. And let me say this too, this is not how I did my work when I started 20 <laughs> years ago. Right? So th- it's been a learning process for me. And something I learned a couple of years ago is the difference between an advisory board and a design council. I've been talking a lot about, oh, I have an advisory board for this research. And, and what I learned is that an advisory board is a board that you bring on after you've designed what you want to do. And you're just bringing them in to advise you on what you've done and is this okay? How does this look? But a design council is the council that builds with you and creates with you. And so we've been moving away from creating things and then going in and getting advice to let's build together and thinking about having design councils rather than advisory councils. So that's just one way that we think about doing this work because that also helps with the dissemination and ensuring that we're doing what people want us to do in the first place, but also that the information is being disseminated in ways that will be helpful to the community. One, I wish we had had this podcast before proposal season, Noni, because I'm like, what I've been describing is a design council, but what I called it is an advisory board. So I love that distinction because I think it's a really important one. And, you know, as we've been talking in my mind, I just think about those times where I have partnered with a community and will just as part of the design process, design council, bring some preliminary questions to respond to, you know, and have some like, hey, how does this resonate? We've talked about what we're wanting to get out in the community, but here are the questions. And they're like, no, not that way. Like, (laughs) let's tweak this. Let's change that. And then so often it's so rich, the folks will bring up what if we asked about this? Because this really matters in our community. And those questions are often the ones that yield such amazing insights. And then 
right, when we get to dissemination means that we're actually closing that research practice gap because we're asking like what the community wants to learn. We're asking those questions and it just makes everything so much better across the board. Exactly. Yes. Well, can you share with us um, how you practice being trauma-informed in your work with communities and how you disseminate your research, whether that be a specific example or philosophy that you use to guide your work in outreach and dissemination? In terms of being trauma-informed in my work, I'll first respond as a researcher and then I'll respond as a community member because I think those are two different sides of sitting in spaces, knowing that you want to still be a member of the community, especially if you live there. I don't want to be an outsider in the spaces that I consider my own, but I do want to bring the skills that I hold, that I've trained for, to serve in the community where I live. So I'm starting with that because when I talk about being trauma-informed in my work in the communities where I was living, where my kids were going to school, where my husband was working, for us, it wasn't good enough to hop in and be professionally okay, but we needed to connect with the people who we cared about because that's why we were doing the work. And so with that, I've already said that listening was essential for us when our teams were starting to do trauma-informed work, but I'll be really specific. When I was first in Flint, one of the very first things that I did was to go to community partner meetings. I didn't go to the meeting with an expectation of picking out the person who has the interest that most closely aligns with mine, but instead listening carefully to what issues they were raising and whether there was overlap between what I did, what I knew, what I was seeing in other spaces and what I was hearing them say was essential to address. So listening, but not just listening to eavesdrop and go tell somebody else what it was that they needed, but listening with the intent of saying, hey, we have resources over in these other spaces. Do you think these resources might be beneficial for the issue I hear you raising? And not bringing it up at that moment either. It also has value to hear it in this meeting, return for the next couple of weeks, see if it's a recurring theme, and then share that you might have a usable resource. Because what I find community partners also don't appreciate is the helicopter researcher or the helicopter supporter, whatever role we want to say we hold, coming in from an external space saying you're going to drop in, give you something, hope that it's great, and then I'm leaving after, that doesn't benefit anyone. So just making sure that the issues we say that we want to address are recurring issues that have some teeth to be addressed over a longer period of time and that the resources we can bring can match that longer term need, I think those are critical junctures that have to be addressed that you get from listening, not from talking first. Uh, I think another way that this has shown up for me in terms of practicing is acknowledging that I don't know what other people are going through and not pretending that I know what other people are going through, but acknowledging that they may be managing that weight without support, without resources. And that what I'm here doing is potentially adding another weight, but I, I am transparent when I say things like, I want to share this with you, but I don't want to overtax you because I know you may have this range of other issues you are managing. Again, sometimes you get that from listening. Other times you get that from sharing. But I find that acknowledging where other people are or what other issues they might be managing is critical to being able to share anything about the work that I do in their spaces. And if you don't do it, they'll shut you down. I hosted a community meeting and... This was in response to the water quality issues that were happening in Flint that really kicked off in 2014. They were ignored for a good amount of time. We had community meetings where partners would come and share their experiences 
but all under the auspices of receiving information from external information holders, as I'll call them. And there was one particular person, he would come to the meetings and he would express himself very loudly, very vocally, but he didn't think he was being heard, which is why he continued to do it. And so we just paused the meeting to let him say what he needed to say. And instead of me telling him my approach was going to fix it or my approach was going to make it better, or we would give him X amount of dollars or his water infrastructure would be supported. It was really being quiet and acknowledging that he was in a difficult spot and there was nothing I could do in that meeting that was going to change it immediately, but we were working toward a solution and that was hopefully going to benefit and not re-traumatize the community or him. That was what he needed at that moment. But again, I saw it from listening. I didn't see it from talking first. I get everyone doesn't have the option to always listen first or listen for a long period of time, but that was certainly one way that my work has been able to be continually used. You know, it made me think as you were talking, Vicki, and actually this came up on another podcast series where we were talking about survivor engagement. And Christina Melander was bringing up that as scientists or as researchers so often we're trained to like remove ourselves to not being involved to, I can't think of like the right term, but it's kind of this like, I need to not be a part of what is happening because I'm studying it. We're objective. Thank you. That's it. And I think that we're moving from that to say like, man, in order for us to do thoughtful research, we have to enter in. And what I hear you describing is entering in and listening and being mindful and thoughtful about when we enter in and how we enter in and rather flipping it to be more, way more driven by the community than we have been. I would agree and say, I don't think we've ever really been objective. We just found (laughs) ways to describe it in such a fashion that makes others believe that we are able to remove ourselves. And that's not really the case. We have underlying subjective assumptions that drive our decision-making every single step of the way. We just put them on paper and never describe our underlying beliefs that go with them. And for that reason, I think it's all equally objective. I don't think that it's better or different. Now it's just explicit or community members push us to be more explicit so that we can decide how we want to work together instead of pretending that we have shared interests when that might not be the case. Well, and to your point, we all hold values and part of building long-term trust with the community is being explicit about what those values are. Because that does also relate ultimately to outreach and dissemination. Are you going to be here in the long term? Are you going to be using these findings in the community or against the community in some capacity? Or just take them with you for your own benefit and never bring them back to the community, which we know historically has happened quite frequently. So I think it's part of building trust is taking the curtain down a little bit. Noni, what does that look like for you? I agree with everything that's been said about it is a focus on listening and relationship building first. It moves slow. <laughs> We're going to focus on building relationships first. And you know, I'm so glad Vicki mentioned attending community meetings. I spent the first two years in Houston attending meetings, but that was the focus. I wasn't collecting any data. I wasn't doing any intervention work. I was just listening for two years to learn more about what was going on in the Houston area. We want to make sure that that we build these relationships. And, you know, I have to acknowledge that my lived experiences are, are different from the lived experiences of the young people with whom we work. They are the expert on their lives and, and not me. And so I'm very honest when I enter community and, and I talk about who I am 
And I think also for us, being trauma-informed starts with asking questions that to us, to me, eliminate trauma and grief bias. As a psychologist, theoretical frameworks are very important for our work. You know, we, we want our work to be theory-based. And so how do we center frameworks and models and theories that are deficit-focused and have minimal relevance to the lived experiences of Black youth? And how can we recenter this scholarship to reflect those lived experiences? So we have to think about things like whose trauma is acknowledged or whose trauma has been acknowledged in the past, whose trauma has been disenfranchised, meaning whose trauma is not socially acknowledged or is silenced or ignored. Even we're doing work on a traumatic loss, who gets to grieve and why? Why has that been the case? So these are some things that guide some of the ideas and questions that we may um, end up addressing in our work. It also, being trauma-informed also involves our research methods. Again, I mentioned receiving permission to partner with communities, relationship building. In our work, we recognize that we're asking people to be vulnerable. We're asking them to share parts of their lives that sometimes these young people have never shared with anybody else. And so how do we create safe spaces and build the trust for young people to do that? We also, in our work, recognize that particularly in psychology, psychology has historically had such a focus on the individual. And so as a community-based researcher, it's really hard to think only about the individual. We recognize through our work that that community violence, which is the main stressor that we study, that impacts Black communities is created by multiple factors, and it cannot be disentangled from these larger societal dynamics that create poverty and mass incarceration and under-resourced schools and untrustworthiness of law enforcement and economic disinvestment. We also recognize how these things create continuous trauma and collective trauma and cultural trauma and historical trauma, and that the existing theoretical models for trauma in my field do not incorporate these ideas. And so we try to push to the field to recognize the importance of trauma that extends beyond the individual. That's really powerful, Noni. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm hearing us discuss a lot about how outreach and dissemination starts before these projects even begin. So we're laying the foundation for successful dissemination well before we have findings to talk about or even research questions or interview guides that we've developed, right? So I want to hear some of your thoughts on expectation setting with communities as a trauma-informed practice, because we know that we don't often see the results we expect, or sometimes we don't find the results we hope to see from a project. So I'm thinking about, I'm currently working with a community partner who up front, she's like, what if we find that this isn't working? And, you know, we have an honest conversation about that's a real possibility. What does happen if we find out that this isn't working? What happens then? And knowing that that's a real possibility, do you want to engage in this work together? You know, one of my mentors told me when I first started in academia, he said, you know, we think we're in the business of being right, but we're in the business of being wrong. And we need to be okay with that. Again, I think about my field in psychology, it's all about confirmatory models rather than exploratory. But I think it's important to recognize that research sometimes yields more questions. And, you know, Hannah, to your point about what if what if you find that this is not working, I think it's important to figure out, you know, well, what's the strategy going to be? 
if that happens. But I think the question is not what if it's not working, it's but in what ways is it working and in what ways is it not working and what does working mean, right? Also, there are lessons in understanding that something might not be having the intended effects that a community partner wants to have. And it doesn't mean that it's the end. It just means that we're going to make adjustments. And again, sometimes the outcomes that we think are important and the outcomes that community, even folks that are running community-based organizations think are important are not really the outcomes that are most relevant for young people. And so that's why I just going back to what Vicky was talking about is and, and engaging young people and, and the community in the process from the beginning, it may shift your research questions. It may shift your questions around the effectiveness of a program, but that's okay because I think it's more important to be relevant to people's lives than to have this great research question that journal articles might pick up on and want to and want to publish if you're doing the work for the reasons that you really say you're doing it. Well, I'll add that with that community partner. Having that conversation led to a really fruitful conversation about thinking exactly to what you're saying. You know, we do want to know if we're not having the intended impact. And and they were really open to wanting to learn that. So that way, if they were not having the impact that they intended, that adjustments could be made accordingly. But I feel like it's important to have that conversation up front so everybody knows the different ways that this could unfurl, right? Well, and to normalize, there will always be something that's going super well and something that needs to be improved. That's the process of life. And even you know, on this podcast series, we've talked about that we have had moments where in our way, our methods of doing research or our processes, we have learned, oh, I wish I hadn't done it that way. Now I'm going to do it a different way. And I think that normalizing of we're going to have lessons learned, we're going to have things that need improvement, and there's going to also be things that are rocking it. And that that is what we're hoping to learn And that as a researcher, I want to be a part of bringing that back to you, you reflecting what you hear, like having the community hear it, and together coming up with the so what and the next steps. And as a researcher, so often I'm like, yeah, and I'll be here if you want to know other things that other people are doing. I'm happy to try and find that for you. Like, this is a partnership. We're going to learn some stuff, and then we'll figure out the path forward if you want to do that together. And I think that's part of the power of that relationship building of this research. Yeah, we're going to learn a lot and you're not alone. (laughs) And then trying to figure out what comes next because the community is here. We are here. We're in it together to figure out ultimately how to best serve the folks that are being impacted by these programs and make sure that the community is is on board and that it's it's good. Mm -hmm. I think I'll add and say. I think it's equally as important to have a framework for how we think the processes will move forward as it is to have a theory and a framework for how we think our interventions or programs will work. And I say that because if the process isn't right, especially in certain communities that are very relationship-based, very much focused on how things have happened, doesn't matter what the product is if we didn't agree to the process that we use to make any of those products. And sometimes we do not do a great job of highlighting the need for a proper process, a process that we agree to, a process that we think is equitable for everyone involved. And when that's not right, I 100% think whatever outcomes we got, if they went well, it was more by luck. It was probably not because of the intervention framework or theories that we were set on. And that is probably one of the 
biggest lessons I've learned over the years that I've done this work. Start with your process because jumping over it will cost you later in time and money. And I know many funding agencies have not historically invested in that process component, but I am appreciating that there have been shifts and changes, especially with COVID, that are making us aware of why the process is as important as the thing, the intervention, the activity that we're trying to get people to buy into. I think this is important to say. It's one thing to adopt it. It's another thing to maintain it. And what I think we're usually after is the maintaining part, but our interventions are designed for the immediate adoption part. And that's where we start to see things split apart. So I 100% think about the whole range of engagement that we really have to focus on when we say being trauma-informed in my world. We're saying it with this idea that, yes, we're being trauma-informed when we bring this to you, but we want it to be sustainable in a way that does not create harm to you over time. And those are very different types of work to do. But for those of us doing community-engaged work, we know it's a requirement in both places. It's resource intensive, time intensive, personnel intensive, but that's where we have seen, in my mind, the best successes or greatest successes. And the only other point I'll make around this is when Noni mentioned the theories that we use to drive our work. In public health, we have our frameworks, our theories and such, but they have not, at least not as I've ever really seen them, they never have this language about being trauma-informed, even though we are people-centered Even though we are bringing activities to individuals who are in tight spaces and we're trying to get them to change something about their practices, their daily behaviors, their ongoing regimens, we're trying to get them to do something different, but we haven't considered how their history influences their framework for operating in daily life. So as long as we keep operating in this sense that we can get people to do it for now and then they'll keep doing it forever without acknowledging how important the process is and how trauma can influence why people do or don't engage in process and integrating trauma-informed thinking into the intervention itself and the framework that we use to design it and motivate people to keep up with whatever behavior we're promoting, we're going to see a lot of struggle. And that's why I think programs don't work out. We've skipped some part in there. We said, oh, we can get past, we can just do it anyway, let's make it happen. And that's when we see things that don't work out. We miss something. So capturing the right outcomes, yep, we got to do it. But it comes with the necessity of listening for the whole process, not just a little piece of it. That's great. And Vicki, for our listeners, could you maybe describe an example of a process that did work really well? In the implementation science space, there is a reasonable emphasis on the processes that we use to engage our stakeholders. I'm appreciating the word stakeholder is controversial, (laughs) acknowledging that for many, that might be the term that you use, but I'm saying it here to mean partners, people with different interests in the work that we're talking about. But we need to hear the perspectives of those persons, regardless of the backgrounds that they come from, especially if they're in a decision-making role or they are the peoples that we expect to use the thing that we are trying to get to be adopted or maintained. So the processes that I have seen that have been most effective, they start with listening, but they start with also identifying what the leadership structure or governance structure would be. So identifying how everybody will have a voice, what those contributions will look like, how they will be heard and shared, and then how they will be used in decision-making. That's another big piece. There are entire papers, disciplines, sub-disciplines that talk about all these pieces, but some element of them have to be present in that process section in order for these initiatives to be fruitful in that process continuum. I think there's also space for making decisions about who the interventions are useful for. So when we talk about behavioral health in the community spaces, 
There are many interventions that might be great if we frame them as prevention activities. There are other interventions that are better framed as treatment activities. But for us, what we saw, and this is me giving context in responding to the Flint water crisis, it was not okay to have the same process for everyone. We had to think intentionally about how our intervention activities would, for example, benefit clinicians. We had to think differently for how that same intervention activity might benefit a community member or a government representative or a faith-based leader or a community organization leader. And I'll end on this note, community organizations and researchers do not always have the same goals. Community organizations may need to stay funded. If they want to stay funded and we're talking about solving the problem, what are they staying funded for? And these are very interesting tensions that have to be worked out when we say we want to bring a service into a space where people have been traumatized, misused, mistreated with time, and we are proposing a solution. That solution creates other problems. So that's the unintended consequence part of being trauma-informed that I think we have to be really intentional about. It's difficult, but it can be worked out in that process section to agree at least for these shorter-term outcomes, as I'll call it. That was a bunch that I put there, but I'm saying they all come out if you don't address them. They all show up and they will influence how well the program or initiative or activity is received. Absolutely. We've been talking about this, but maybe be a little more explicit about why this trauma-informed approach to community outreach and dissemination matters to you and why you think it should matter to other people. Well, let me start by saying, I don't know if I want to think about it as why others should care. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just, sometimes when using that terminology, it means we're trying to force people to care about something that they, they're they not going to care about mm-hmm. or they have mm-hmm. no interest in. So for me, it, that's less important. I will say, I years ago learned about a concept called slow violence that was coined by Rob Nixon. It talks about the violence that comes about from things like climate change, toxic drift, oil spills, environmental issues, even the environmental aftermath of war. And this violence takes place gradually. And according to him and often invisible, there have been some responses to this concept of slow violence in an article that was published last year. And the Tom Davies talks about invisible for who? Because we are making the assumption that the people who are impacted by this don't know that it's happening and that's wrong. But what he talked about in this article is a different kind of violence, epistemic violence. And this is a violence that happens when people's stories do not count and when people's stories are not told. And so when people's stories, when their lives do not count, it renders certain populations vulnerable to these issues. So it's kind of like a notion of indifference about the experiences. And even some people talk about the suffering of marginalized groups that helps to sustain the slow violence. And we started thinking more about this epistemic violence and people being silenced. And so, you know, dissemination, I think, professionally, we think about, you know, publishing this in journal articles and presenting it at conferences and even doing presentations for the community with whom we've worked. But I think it's more than that. I think it is elevating the voices of those whose stories have not counted. And so I find myself less concerned about changing everybody's mind, right? And more concerned about empowering those who have been marginalized. 
that in and of itself might result in changing minds. But I think more about the empowerment and elevation of the voices of folks who've been marginalized than how can I get my colleagues to see this in a different way, if that makes sense. Dissemination for me over the past few years has really become more about how do we elevate voices that have been silenced historically. Vicki, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Why does being trauma-informed in community outreach and dissemination matter to you? It matters to me because as a public health professional, our discipline says that we care about seeing people be well. We care about seeing people improve. We care about ideally the world being a better, healthier place. But if we don't have a sense of awareness and compassion for the people who are around us, I'm not sure how there is an us. So the individual focus that I see around us so often leads us down, in my opinion, like a rabbit hole of thinking it's only our reality that matters. It's only our experiences that matter. But every action that we take has an impact on others. And I think we have to be sensitive to it. I don't want to be on the receiving end of somebody else's insensitivity. And that makes me probably the most aware, the most mindful of how the words that I say or the things that I promote or the activities that I'm encouraging can just as easily make somebody feel terrible or just as easily dissuade them from adopting some behavior that we think is better in the long term as I think it can be beneficial. We just have to be aware. I think it's necessary to recognize how we impact others. Being trauma-informed is taking that to the next stage. It's not just being nice to others, but instead thinking a little bit about how the things that we think can be great can also be harmful. I'm just so excited about this podcast airing. This feels so motivational and thinking about empowering voices and really it feels so critical to us. And maybe that's even why we're thinking of like, why should others be interested? Because what we're saying is it impacts everything, right? Where we start to where we end when we're engaging with communities, the importance of listening, the importance of centering voices, the importance of the fact that in our role as researchers, we can be part of, I almost see it as healing, like helping to be part of a healing journey of elevating a voice of someone who's been silenced. I think that is part of my partnership, advocacy, et cetera. So if someone is listening to this episode, they're wanting to move towards trauma-informed approaches and projects, and sometimes we get it, that can feel overwhelming. What advice would you give them about where and how to get started? My first quick initial response is assume nothing. Listen to everything, but assume nothing. Mm. What does that look like? In my world, it means not assuming that we know why people choose the behaviors that they do. We do not always have a clear understanding of why people make the choices that they do. We do not walk in their shoes. We do not live their lives. We do not have the decisions to make every day that they do. When we stop assuming that we know why people do whatever they do and then use that as a foundation, or maybe enhancing the design of your research project. When we think about outreach and dissemination, maybe even thinking about the end of the work and using that to inform our design of the work from the start. If we want people to adopt healthier behaviors, we want them to adopt safer behaviors. In my mind, we really want them to use what we think we've learned in our disciplines. In order to do that, you have to ask them what they think about it and then be willing to adjust our approaches and the design structure and intervention activities. And that's hard, but it is where I think you have to start. It takes time. And I think sometimes that's a piece that can feel frustrating in reality, but it's so worth it. 
There is also benefit in finding partners who have longstanding relationships that you may not have. Be willing to partner with people who know more than you do about the communities where you want to serve. So yes, there is a time part. And yes, there is a reasonable amount of engagement that has to happen before any research activities even happen or the outreach happens or dissemination happens. But being willing to work with people who know the spaces where you want to help and be beneficial is a great way to get started. Perhaps that's even more concrete for people who are open and willing to do that. Partner and listen. You know, I'm so glad Vicki mentioned about partnering with people who are closer to the population. And I think, Jacqueline, this may have been part of our last conversation in Chicago, but I remember at that time that we were talking, I was just meeting with executive directors of organizations just to listen to what was going on with them and and their service of young people. And what came up for me is this model in my field is to develop an intervention, write a grant, get the funding, go in, deliver the intervention, three years, funding's gone, you're out, which in and of itself can be a traumatic experience for the community. And why are we spending money for somebody who is less connected to a community than the people who have been on the ground for years? Why are we not supporting those efforts? These are folks who have longstanding relationships with families, with young people in communities. And why are we not supporting that work and helping to enhance that work rather than supporting something that's going to make their work even more difficult after we're gone because we've introduced this new trauma of coming in, delivering something with a whole bunch of people they don't know, and then leaving because sustainability has not been a consideration of of funding agencies. And having like a conversation even of, you know, okay, what's the funding sources available, right? I feel like as researchers, so often I'm aware of a lot of those. And how do we just start even with maybe the community should be the prime applicant and I'm not that. Or sometimes it's I am the prime applicant, but then we have very clear expectation settings to your point, Hannah, of what that means. But then we're talking about what does sustainability look like? Who else can we engage? So I think that's an important conversation of like partnership can also mean researchers stepping back in a different way, even from the funding source perspective. I think I learned early on in my training as a community psychologist to enter spaces with a lot of humility and to ask questions around like, what would allow you to do your job better and to focus my research interests within that context? And I think over time, I've been confronted with how important it is to continually ask that question throughout the process. So not stopping with asking it at the design phase, but asking it in member checking phases throughout data collection and analysis and at the dissemination phase, really thinking critically about sharing back the findings with folks and asking, is your experience represented in here? Are you seeing yourself in this? So when this gets pushed out, we're having the intended impact of this research to begin with? Am I answering those questions that we set out to answer at the beginning together? So I appreciate you all kind of bringing this so concisely together and thinking about how important it is to maintain those relationships. I mean, ultimately over years, right? These should be decades long relationships in an ideal scenario. Sometimes the answer that the community provides to that question, Hannah, is a very small impact on the whole. Sometimes it might be larger, but I remember I was working with an organization looking at secondary traumatic stress of their advocates who were doing hospital-based 
advocacy for sexual assault. And from that, it was like, wow, there is a lot that is needed here in order to better bolster and support folks, both from an individual and an organizational level. We wrote up this article, sent it to them for their review after we had already you know, done other participatory parts. And what they asked for was, And can you include a note in the discussion that funding isn't supporting this, that we need more administrative funds to support this type of effort and to highlight that that is often not noted as an allowable cost? And I was like, oh my gosh, of course, it's one sentence. But they have now taken that article and talked to funders and been like, look, the research is saying this is important and it's not supported. Sometimes it's seemingly small things that can have a huge impact that help the community. Well, and you can't know that if you're not asking, right? Yeah. And listening. Creating space for folks to share what's critical for them and to assume that they will know what's important for them and to continue making that space for that. Is there anything else you would like to leave our listeners with today as we start to wrap up? Hannah, I actually wanted to tag on to what you just said. In making space for people, this is concretely speaking, it means not having a packed agenda where the time for questions is 20 seconds. It means being okay with pure silence that lasts longer than 20 seconds. It means sharing information before the meeting so that the people who are coming have a chance to formulate a thought about it before the meeting. It means recognizing that just because you have a degree or a formal title does not mean you are the only information holders in the meeting. It very concretely means be willing to listen and make space for listening that is not listening to respond, but listening to comprehend. Sorry, those would be the things that I would leave leave the listeners with. And it very much connects to exactly what you said. Beautiful. I will say something that might kind of turn everything on its head, but we are actually moving away from using the phrase trauma-informed in our work. And that was the result of somebody in the community talking about, well, you could be trauma-informed, but you don't know how to respond. And so it's much more important to be trauma-responsive. So of course, when I moved down here, I came in with this mission of being trauma-responsive and knowing how to respond, right? But we've been moving away from that into more healing-engaged work. And you know, the traditional models uh, involve treatment, which is what is wrong with you, right? And the trauma-informed approach asks, what happened to you? But kind of healing-engaged work says, what is right with you? And Sean Jenright has done a lot of work in promoting healing engaged work and activities with young people. And he talks about how a trauma-informed approach can be incomplete because people are more than what has happened to them. And a lot of times with trauma-informed work, people stop there. It's just recognizing what has happened to folks. And people are more than that. So I think it's important. It's nice to be trauma-informed, but I think moving more towards healing engaged models is really where we need the direction we need to be going. I don't want to say that's the end point because two years from now, there may be something else, right? That's even better. But I think we need to move towards recognizing, okay, trauma impacts folks, but it's not all of who they are. Just an example of something recently we've been talking about is is in designing interventions, trauma narratives are strategies that are used in lots of trauma interventions, right? Having people kind of do this timeline of things that have happened to them. But there's other work that talks about this extending beyond those traumatic experiences and doing more of a journey experience. What are all the things that have happened in your life that have been important, whether it's negative or positive? 
And it just creates the understanding that people are more than their traumatic experiences. And I think we have to approach our work with that understanding. You're tapping into something that Jacqueline's been talking a little bit about, this continuum of what it means to address trauma through our work. Jacqueline's been bringing this up throughout the podcast series, so I'm glad we were able to tie it into this episode as well. This has been such an enriching discussion. I'm so thankful for the time, for your knowledge, for uh, your vulnerability and humility, even in approaching this conversation today, but also the work in communities. So Vicki and Noni, it's been a pleasure discussing this with you. And thank you for the time that you've taken to dialogue with us today. Thank you for having us. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and additional resources, please view the landing page of this episode. I'm Jacqueline Houston Kolnick. And I'm Hannah Feeney. And this has been another episode of Just Science. This episode concludes our trauma-informed research methods mini-season. Tune in next season to learn more about the Human Trafficking Policy and Research Analysis Project. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. 